Kings of the Podcast. Here we go again, Dennis Bernstein. But we picked the perfect time to do this uh, after the Kings and Seattle decided to uh, have a barn burner at Crypto Arena. I'm sure that we can get into that. But uh, Dennis Bernstein, Kings of the Podcast, episode 142. How are you doing? That didn't burn the barn. That burned the skyscraper. And okay. they just scored again. It's now 9-9. They decided to we should have the had the goal horn ready in the background. Yes, there could be a few more goals. Uh, I think I think I might do the open for hot stove on Saturday using all the gold highlights, all all the uh, actually scoring calls um, in the game. That's uh, that'd be probably a ten minute open. So uh, yes. fantastic! A a show a game we'll never see again. Well, Pretty confident saying. Uh, here's the thing, Dennis. Uh, people are going nuts for this game, but how about this? Uh, in the annals of NHL history, you have the 15 nothing game when the Detroit Red Wings uh, beat the New York Rangers, and then you have a 15 to two game where the it's I think it's the only other game where uh, 15 goal the 15 goal mark was reached. The Minnesota North Stars, going back a number of years, beat the Winnipeg Jets. So uh, it, it was not quite it was not quite that. But DB, I jokingly said to you that I was going to read all of these tweets, but yes. I'm actually pretty serious about this. I think this right. would be good therapy because right now Kings fans, they need help, Dennis. They're on the ledge. They're, oh, they're on the God. edge. They're they on ever. the ledge there. Some of them have gone overboard. Some of them have joined in on the dumpster fire um, that they believe that, that is going on right now. So I just thought this would be good therapy. Let me read some of the answers Please. and some of the tweets. So last night, uh, I tweeted out, predict the final score with a blank next to the Kraken and a blank next to the Kings. When did you do that, though? I, I don't even remember. I mean, it was in game, though. I, yeah, I think it was like early third period. So there was still oh, yeah, was. that's okay. actually when it was. Actually, that's when it was. It was it was uh, second intermission heading into the third period. OK, OK, gotcha. Um, so. I'm just going to read the 47 answers I think that came Please through do. on this tweet. I'm sure they're entertaining. Uh, eight, nine, uh, probably. I'm positive over here with a thumbs up. Next one, 13 to 10. Win or lose tonight <laughs> is a huge loss. Someone is getting fired, traded, demoted, waived, flogged after this one. The team is sending messages to management tonight. It is not a good one. Uh, the next answer, 11 to 8 Kraken. Next one, 10, 7 Kraken. Next one was uh, 12 for the Kraken, 10 for the Kings. Uh, the next one had nothing to do with the final score, but still this guy, won, or female, I'm not sure who, uh, wanted to weigh in. Bjorn Foot should be on the five freeway right now. Uh, he may have to carpool with Matty V. I'm not really sure why he would be on the five freeway because he lives in the South Bay and right. it just it doesn't connect. But I get the point. Uh, he was wanting Bjorn Foot to be, or she was wanting Bjorn Foot to be called up. Uh, let's see what else here. Uh, 
nine eight or nine Seattle, ten Kings. Next one, trade Dursey. Uh, again, I don't know what that has to do with the final score. Uh, table flip, uh, which was, I guess, just the best answer possible. Uh, kind of saying they don't care what the final score was. They were pretty upset. Ten uh, seven didn't didn't call a winner. Uh, Seattle uh, six wins in a row. L.A. long look in the mirror. So I guess that's the final score. Seattle uh, six wins in a row. L.A. needs to take a long look in the mirror. The next one might have been my favorite one. It was eighty seven to eighty five. He thought it was some yeah, sort of an NC two A basketball game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kings just need a field goal. Yes, of course. Anytime you get around six in a game, people start making the football reference. That's that's common yes. in the world Extra of hockey. Extra point, field goal. Extra point, field goal. Yeah. 15-14 uh, Kings. That would have been amazing. Um, I really don't care at that point who got fired or traded. 15-14 to four, 14 would have been incredible. 27-24 uh, with the winning field goal by Seattle. So there you go. More football. 9-8 um, Kraken. 8-7 Seattle. 9-6. to six. Um, Kings one and five in their last six, lost three straight in overtime. Kopitar and Dowdy showing their age. And the big one, Peterson is not our goalie of the future. Okay. Um, I will predict there will be lineup changes come Thursday. I mean, wow, that's really going out on a limb there. Uh, 10-7 Seattle. Seattle 10, Kings 9. Uh, Kings lose by four. Todd gets fired. So 10-6. That was the prediction. Fired. Here we go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's why I wanted to read these, Dennis. I figure, why ignore them? I figure, like, if we just yeah. get them all out into the universe right now, we can be yeah. done and we can purge them. So uh, let me continue here, if you don't mind. 59-53. to 53, I don't know. It's just uh, a low-scoring NC2A basketball game. Yes. Uh, 10-7 Seattle. 10-8 Seattle. Uh, I hear the draft is good this year. Maybe the Kings uh, can get another center that will never play for the team. Okay, thank you for that, Mr. Positive. 8-6 um, Kraken, 9-8 Kraken, 11-10, Kings in the shootout. That would have been awesome. By the way, I really wanted it to go to a shootout, Dennis, because I already oh, yeah. had, my, I had my tweet ready. I was expecting Matt Roy to win it for the Kings in the shootout. Right? I, I was going up and down the roster and thinking, what is the most, you know, Random thing, because that game had everything, including the horn that sounded 10 seconds early. Yes, there's 12 guys on the ice at the end of the game. They're not blowing the horn. And then then there's too many men on the ice, not on that play. Like That would be the play for too many men on the ice. Everybody's over there, and then Vic Austin chases down the puck, and Jones like, what are you doing? He goes, he never blew the whistle, and then the horn blew. It was the strangest thing. There was the hit in front of the bench, and everybody just stopped Stopped. playing, but yet there was no whistle. Yes. It was bizarre. Uh, let's see. I have more here, Dennis. Uh, let's see. What is this? Uh, you think you think this game survives five minutes of three on three? Uh, let's see. 10-9 Kings. 11-10 Kings. 10-6. 10-8 Kraken. 12-7 Kraken. Uh, this team has major issues. 76-44, the Zamboni driver. <laughs> I don't understand that tweet, but I guess. I um, and Kings 11, Kraken 10, I think. Uh, so, well, we can end it there. They're all they're all sort of, uh, at this point, in the same vein. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dennis, it's, it's, it hasn't been enough time for you to forget this game. Todd's going to have some comments at practice. But yep. give us your quick take. I saw your small picture, medium picture, big picture. <laughs> but, um, yeah. 12 hours later, what, what's your take on that game? Uh, the goaltending is horrendous. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, you, and look, yes, you have to change things on defense. I get it. I understand it. And I know people like really drilling Sean Dursey, and I know he makes mistakes, but th- that, pa- it, that pairing isn't working. Because if you look at Matt Roy's uh, giveaways this season, he had 44 giveaways in all of last season, right? He's got 22 or 24 this season. He's not been good either, right? And for people, for people that want Todd fired, 
Okay. Here's a little trivia question for you. What was the Kings record after 25 games last season? 11, 10, and 4. They had a worse record last season than this team does. So they're actually trending ahead of last season. So Todd's not going anywhere. I guess they have to change things. You think Barry Trott's going to come in, put in, lay in a new system in the middle of a season when there's no practice time, when they rarely practice? Come on. Like, this team needs to fix things. But, Dennis, it, but Dennis, yeah. Daryl did it in 2012. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you my Twitter yeah, voice right now. Exactly. Daryl did yeah. it in 2012. And that happened on 12 – that happened on 12-12 in, in 11. So yeah. it's too bad it didn't happen on, on December uh, 12th of 2012. But it happened on 12-12-11. So we're coming up on the anniversary of Terry Murray Day when Terry Murray was dismissed. So Daryl did it, Dennis. Daryl's team's behind the Kings right now. They're playing worse. And so's Woodcroft's team in Edmonton. They're 12-10. and 10. Are those, far those coaches too? It just... You're not finding at this point. You can't do it. It's like you're giving up the season, and you can't because the division stinks. It's not any good. You can't think Seattle really going to keep winning all these games, right? So th- that part of it is fine. But yes, things need to be changed, and I think it's, I think it's more on Rob than it is on Todd. I, I think you really have to look at the the defense and make significant changes on the defense. Yeah, look, the offense, the fours aren't really helping much. But you look at the defense, you look at the goaltending, that has to change. If it doesn't change, they're missing the playoffs. They can score seven goals every game, and they're going to lose every game 8-7. Like, things have to change. You can lay it on the coach, but, I mean, damn it. Like, Gabe scored two goals last night. Great. He made a terrible pass to the middle to give up one of those goals. It was just a once-in-a-lifetime game, John. So if you're making any, like, serious decisions about that, like about the coach or, or something really structural off one game, you're being reactionary. It's a knee-jerk reaction. I Again, like everything else, John, show me what happens tomorrow against Arizona. Like t- You got to win that game. I, I get it. They got points. And the, the other thing is, if the team quit on him, you would have seen it. it that game would have been 12-6. They battled back, actually. They got two in the third, right? They were emotional. It was a tough game to lose, but like structurally – you're not changing the coach. You're not changing the system. But I, I do think the personnel got to be changed at this point. All right. So let me react to a couple of things there because yeah. uh, I, I do agree with much of what you said. Um, first of all, I do agree that the team didn't quit last night. And so if you're looking for quit, there wasn't because it very they very easily, especially after Quick gave up two goals on two shots uh, and he was pulled, even up to that point, the team could have just said, hey, we're not getting the goaltending that we need tonight and we're just going to pack it in. And like you said, we're going to lose 10-3 or whatever the, the score yeah. would have been. But they continued to battle. They continued to battle right to the very end. Yes, they made plenty of mental mistakes along the way. And that's been the trademark of the team at different times this year. Uh, I also think that it, it builds off of what we talked about in the last episode. Almond Joy or Mounds. That's what this team is. Yeah. You either get offense or you get defense. You don't but get you both. You don't know which one. You don't no, know, you don't which, know which one. I wish they would tell us going into the game. Tonight's going to be Almond Joy and tomorrow's going to be Mounds. Um, I disagree with one thing, though, and that is that game against Seattle was more important than the game coming up against Arizona. Yes, you have to win the game against Arizona, but the game you really have to win was the game against Seattle for a number of different reasons. They're not doing well in the Pacific Division this year, the Kings. Uh, Seattle is ahead of them, so it was the proverbial four-point game. Seattle has also handed them two losses this year as well. So there should have been a little bit extra sort of motivation and they should have had the sting of the Ottawa game from Sunday and that loss there as well. So there were a lot of things that should have been enough of a motivator for them to go into that game and win that game. And, and then Martin Jones has been the kryptonite to the Kings. You look at his record 
uh, and he wasn't having a good night. So if Martin Jones isn't having a good night, then you really need the team to stand up and have a yeah. have a better uh, sort of go at it. And then in terms of where do you lay the blame? Is it Rob Blake? Is it Todd McClellan? Is it the players? I think first and foremost, it starts with the players. I think Rob Blake has done a masterful job of putting together and winning the summers, putting the right roster together. There is some... There is some criticism that's deserved, though, uh, of fixing the defense. People have been asking, what's the difference? Why were they so solid defensively last year versus this year? Well, there were there were some different defensemen on the roster uh, last year because you had Edler out hurt. You had du- uh, Dowie, Dowdy. I can't say his name, uh, Dennis. You had Drew Dowdy that was out hurt. Uh, so there were different defensemen put in different roles, and there's a different mindset when every, every group has a different mindset. And when Dowdy's out there, I just think that the team they're not playing as solid, solidly defensively as they were when he was out of the lineup. And I always hearken back to when Gretzky was out of the lineup in 92-93 and how that team played a different game versus when he was in the lineup because they they were standing around and, and watching and waiting for Gretzky to do something versus saying, okay, 99's not out there and now we're going to have to change our approach. And I think there's a little bit of that that happens when uh, when eight is on you know on the bench versus when he's not on the bench. And the last thing I want to say as a reaction to to what you're saying there, uh, putting the lineup together, uh, you know, I don't know if it's Todd that makes the decision. Uh, ultimately, as the coach, he's supposed to. I don't know if he makes it in concert with Rob. But you do need to inject some other players into the lineup. These six defensemen are not getting it, Dennis. And whether it's Jordan Spence or whether it's, you know, whoever it is, Bjornfoot, um, there are some other guys that deserve some opportunities, whether it's Jacob Bavari or whatever. You need to make some lineup changes. And, it's not like guys haven't been available because when you call them up, they are available. We'll talk about call-ups in a minute, but when they're, when they're there, they're available. So I'm not even talking about calling up a player. I'm talking about using a player. I I get it. I get it. But at some point in time, you got to get a legitimate left side defenseman who's going to play 20 minutes, whoever it is. And and as funny as it sounds, you know, they miss right now. They miss Olimata, believe it or not. Like, because Edler's not the guy. He once was, and he's a bottom pair guy. He's maybe 12 minutes. Like that bottom pair with Edler and Walker, that needs to change. And, and John, you thought it was meritocracy because of what's going on with Clark with the 10th game. And, you know, look, Dursey was supposed to be the right side defenseman. Walker was supposed to be the left side second pair guy. That lasted like eight games, and he hasn't been back there since. Now he's a third pair. right? And you're asking Dursey to move over when you never – that wasn't the plan. So – Yes, there should be a meritocracy. You got to give some other players a shot here. If it's Muvari, if you want to bring up Spence, Bjornfoot, you know, the person mentioned about driving up the five. The guy played 70 games last year. He's not a rookie anymore, and he, he can't seem to make the prep. So I'm not sure what the decision is to for the grouping of defensemen, but you got to change something. You got to experiment right now and give other people more of an opportunity, more of a light, because it's not working at all. You're right. Edler's 36 years old. There's nothing wrong with saying, and I, w- I want to use this as a setup for a conversation to have in the third period because we do have Dave Jackson, uh, former yeah. NHL referee, now rules analyst with ESPN. I forgot to mention that at the top of the podcast. He's going to join us. We want to get him in here, talk to him, and then we can come back in the third. But Alex Edler is 36 years old. There's nothing wrong with saying great player, had a great career, and he's just not somebody who should be getting second-line minutes on a regular basis at this point in his career. That is not meant in any disrespectful way. It's actually respectful to still acknowledge that he can contribute. There are a lot of guys, Dennis, that are 33, that are younger than him, 
mm-hmm. that have washed out and are no longer in the National Hockey League yeah, and can't 100%. get a job. Guys that sign PTO contracts and can't make a team coming out of out of training camp. Alex Edler's not that guy. He still can contribute. There's nothing. Alex Edler is worthy of being in the top seven for the LA Kings. He just shouldn't be a second pair guy or he shouldn't be getting heavy minutes on a consistent basis. That's not where he is at this point in his career. And he shouldn't be playing every game. It has to be a rotation. That's to be more of a rotation. He, there's, and look, if Todd thinks he's one of the top six, keep him in. That's fine. There needs to be a rotation. He, he, the plan, I'm sure, coming in wasn't for him to play 82 games, and it looks like he's going to play 82 games unless there's some changes and significant changes. But with that said, the mentality up front has to change too. There, there needs to be some more support. You know, th- there's a lot of guys up front making turnovers that lead to goals as well. But I think that it starts with the defense. But John, that still doesn't add, you know, absolve what's going on in the net. And, and I don't know what to do there. It's, it's, it's that really needs to change. And I don't know how you change that part. Is it the goaltending or is it the defense in front of them? No. Or is it a combination thereof? What's, what's your take on that? The goaltending's bad. It's bad. Statistically, it's bad. They're not stealing games. They're not making the big save at the right time. I'm not sure what's going on with Cal. His confidence looks shot. Um, yes, it, it, the defense contributes to it, but they're not giving up. And I get Van statistics before every game. They're not giving up huge amount of slot shots and danger shots and, and high danger shots. These guys aren't making saves. And whatever happens that like the, on the goal with Roy, the, um, with Peterson, his stick got cut with Roy. It just it, – it, it it yes the defense needs to be better from a team standpoint, but these guys got to make saves. When you look at the, the the save percentage numbers, they're in they're like in the 30s and 40th in the league, and that that can't happen if they're going to try to get back to the playoffs. All right, so I wanted to uh, switch gears here for just a moment. We have Dave Jackson coming up on the uh, on the other side of the break. I'm going to do my own little segment here on rules DB on our way out of the first period, and that is this. Uh, the Kings have called up several players here over the last couple of days, and some fans have been asking, well, why are you calling up a player from Ontario and then not putting him in the lineup, and what's the point and all this? So let me just sort of give two brief explanations because um, I did this on Mayor's Manor the other day, or it was on Mayor's Manor, I should say, in one of our preview articles um, written by one of the, the writers on staff. Uh, and, and so here's the, the basic deal. With guys like Jacob Mavari, guys that um, had to clear waivers at the beginning of the season, So these are guys that are out of waivers and they had to clear waivers to be sent to AHL Ontario. You can recall those players during the season and you don't have to put them on waivers again to send them back down until they have played 10 NHL games or been on the NHL roster for 30 days, whichever one comes quicker, whichever one comes sooner. So in other words, you can't call that player up and then have him just be an quote unquote extra player that's hanging around, not playing um, for 45 days. You can't. And then if you try to send him down, then he has to clear waivers again and he can be claimed by any other team. You also can't call him up while a player is injured and then have him play 12 games and then try to send him back down because he would have been over the limit, right? So in in the case of Mavari and these type of guys, you want them to go back down to Ontario and keep them off the NHL roster for as long as possible so that that clock doesn't start. There are other players, and that's why there are a lot of paper transactions, by the way. Guys like Leah Sanderson, guys like Jacob Bavari, uh, they require waivers. And so you're trying to minimize the 10 games played and or minimize the 30 days that they're on the roster. It gets tricky when they go out on the road, Dennis, because you want to carry an extra forward and an extra defenseman when you go out on the road. 
So ignoring the salary cap reasons for saving right. money and saving cap money for later in the year for a trade or whatever, um, you want to bring a, an extra body a de on defense and an extra body at forward with you on the road. So that's oftentimes why they don't call up, let's just say, Sammy Fagamo, who's having a great year once again for the Ontario Reign. Well, why don't they call him up? Well, if they really don't plan on playing him, then you don't mm -hmm. want to call him up and bring him on the road and have him be away from the rain, not playing, not developing at this point in the season. Maybe you do it later in the year as a reward and somebody that you want to plug in if you have to. But sure. at this point, they're just backup sort of players, if you will. So then somebody said, OK, well, why'd you call this guy up over that guy? Well, they called Freddie up the other day, a player that a lot of Kings fans haven't heard of because he's not a prospect. He's but he is on an, an, an uh, NHL contract. You call that player up as an extra player. And so, again, people are saying, well, why not call up this guy? Why not call up that guy? Well, you're not going to call somebody up if or I should say in this particular case, you're not calling a player up that you don't plan on playing. It's an emergency right. backup play. It almost doesn't matter who the player is, Dennis. Correct. Right. It doesn't matter. You're absolutely and right. and you you you've checked in with your team. Everybody's healthy in the morning. Everyone should be able to go that night. So what are the chances of that player playing? Very slim that that particular player is going to play. Now, others try to play, make the counter argument. Well, why not call up a guy like Bjornfoot, who doesn't require waivers? Because if they had to put a player in, why not put that particular player in? Wouldn't you rather give your team the best chance to win? Sure, they probably would rather put Toby in than put Freddie into the lineup. However, they're playing the odds a little bit, and the odds are you know less than 10%, less than 5% that Freddie would have had to go in and play. So mm -hmm. you also don't know the situation with the Bjornfoot or with anybody else who's coming off of back-to-back -back games playing over the weekend. How tired are they? Or did they get a little bit banged up in those games? So there are other things that go into the um, decisions regarding some of these players. And then the last sort of rules thing that I just wanted to mention, because there's um, been a lot of talk about Brant Clark and that there are two numbers that uh, NHL teams keep an eye on with a young player and activating their entry-level contract. It's the 10 game and the 40 game. So 10 games is when you activate the first year of their contract. So Brent Clark has played nine games. If Once he plays his 10th game, then the first year of his entry contract has been activated. And even if the following day after the 10th game, they send him back to junior, they've burned, you'll hear that phrase, they've burned the first year of the three years of the contract, where if they send him back, it slides and it has the three years, uh, the, the first of the three years hasn't really started yet. But the other rule is the 40 game. If a player is on the roster for 40 games, regardless of whether they play or how many they played, if they're on the roster for 40 uh, games, um, then they get, in essence, a year of service. So it impacts when their free agency begins um and, and other things that come with years of service so just because he only plays let's just hypothetically say 38 games this year people will say oh well he didn't play half a year well he's on the roster uh conceivably for 40 games whether he played or not so he gets credit for those years of service and i think back to a guy like davis Drewiski in the 2012 year he certainly didn't play that many games, but he was on the roster for that many games. Kevin Westgarth yep. was on the roster for that many games. So they get credit for years of service. So just a little bit of clarity there. Some people like the rules and they're interested in that. And uh, if if you tuned out and, and I was boring you there for a couple of seconds while we were going over that, don't worry, because on the other side of the break, Dave Jackson is going to enlighten all of us and teach us hopefully about the rules of the National Hockey League. He was a longtime NHL referee and he's now with ESPN as a rules analyst. So coming up on the other side of the break, Dave Jackson will be right back.
Welcome back, Kings of the Podcast, second period. And we're excited for our next guest here, uh, Dennis. We had talked about having him on last year. It just sometimes it takes a while to get through all the, the red tape and the clearance. Uh, Dave Jackson, former NHL referee, is going to come on and talk with us. Dave, welcome to the program. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Well, look, uh, we have a bunch of different questions for you. We want to talk about officiating and uh, all the things going on around the league, of course. And uh, you're with ESPN now, um, which is super cool because when I watch NFL games, I love when they go to the rules expert and, you know, try to help explain the game. So we'll talk about your role on the NHL side and how that's evolving under the new TV package. Uh, But maybe just wanted to give people an idea um, about your background because I did a little research prior to bringing you on. I'll tell the story about how I came to know you a little bit later, but uh, sure. The quick background that I saw was that you did the Memorial Cup in 1988, which for those that don't know is is a pretty big deal in junior hockey uh, for the CHL. And then the NHL signed you to, I guess, a minor league contract in 1989, if the research is correct. And then you eventually on December 22nd of 1990. So we're coming up on your anniversary. You made your debut with the NHL uh, refereeing. I think it was the Devils and the Quebec Nordique who don't even exist anymore. So That's it. G- g- give us some background. You're. You're doing junior hockey. How did you get started? The question I always have for a referee is, why did you end up being a referee instead of end up being a player? Because obviously you love the sport. So what what, what drew you to putting on the black and white stripes? Well, I, I never, uh, believe me, um, it's funny. People that don't know officiating think that, you know, as a little kid, you, you grow up going, oh, I want to be a referee. I mean, <laughs> nobody wants to grow up to be a referee. <laughs> I wanted to grow up and be a player. I mean, uh, I'm of the age where the Montreal Canadiens, I'm from Montreal, and the Montreal Canadiens had a dynasty when I was a kid. You know, Gila Fleur, Ken Dryden, Larry Robinson, uh, I mean, you name it. I skipped school to go watch the Stanley Cup parades almost every year. And um, I wanted to be a player. Uh, but I was undersized. I didn't grow until I was 18 or so, but I was a small defenseman, and I wasn't that brave. So I took up refereeing when I was 14 years old, but I was still, my, my dream to play hockey was still there. Uh, it wasn't until I was 16, 17, I realized, well, I'm not, I'm not getting drafted. So I'm going to go to college and just keep refereeing for, um, you know, a little bit of spare pocket change. And yeah. all that changed, all that changed when I started doing uh, junior hockey, I started doing major junior as a, as a linesman, actually, when I was 17. And it was, it was quite a rush. It was quite a thrill. I mean, for those who don't know, Canadian major junior hockey. I mean, there's a ton of, there was a ton of fighting. Uh, there was a lot of good players back then, uh, as there are today. But I remember when I was a linesman, there were players like uh, Pat Lafontaine, Mario Lemieux, Claude Lemieux. Uh, it was just, it was pretty exciting. And um, I was refereeing as well, but not major junior. I was doing junior A hockey. I was doing major triple A hockey. And I went to a referee school in the summer not so much to learn, but to sort of showcase because they sent an NHL scout there, Brian Lewis, to, to go watch for any potential prospects. And I stood out, he invited me to training camp. This was 1986. And uh, they invited me to training camp, NHL training camp. They hired me on, not contract, but it was called the NHL trainee. So I was paid per game. And they traveled me through all three junior hockey leagues. So Quebec, Ontario, and the Western League as well as the IHL, some NCAA, and a bit of American hockey league. So I had one sweater with a Velcro patch on it. <laughs> I just kept changing the crest. I had eight different rule books. And um, the funny thing was, the Quebec League, the commissioner thought I was too young to be a referee in the, in, in the queue. I was only 21. Uh, but he accepted that if the NHL assigned me games, they had like this working relationship, 
if the NHL assigned me games, he'd be happy to have me work, work in the league under the banner of the NHL, not as a Quebec major junior referee. So that's how I ended up doing my first year in 1986. And then in 87, 88, uh, they sort of accepted that I was a NHL trainee plus a Quebec official, and I ended up doing the Memorial Cup. And then in 89, when the season ended, they signed me to a full-time contract. So that meant I went from getting paid, you know, 150 bucks a game to actually getting a full-time salary and medical benefits and all that. And my first year was strictly American Hockey League. American League was much smaller back then, only 15 teams. And it was staffed exclusively by NHL-contracted referees. And then I ended up doing my first NHL game in 1990, which was something you never forget. In fact, Gila Fleur was on the starting lineup. He was playing for the Nordiques back then. Wow. You know, uh, I, I was holding this while you were telling the story there. One of the first or second sentences, you said you were born in Montreal. Well, we knew you were from Montreal because there, there's one way to tell. It's how you pronounce it. It's either Montreal if you're from there or Montreal to the rest of the world. So <laughs> we didn't even have to get to the Lemieux or however. I can't even say it. Say it again. Yeah. Montreal. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Lemieux. You named a couple of players. Lemieux. Oh, I can't uh, say. Mario Lemieux. I can't. Mario Lemieux. Claude Lemieux. Yes, yes. That's how. Yes, that's how we know. It's a. It's a. It's a dead giveaway. But go back to when, even when you're making, you called it pocket change. Even when you're being paid per game, that had to be a thrill, though, because. You're, you are working for the NHL, even though you haven't made it to the NHL yet. Is that when you started to realize like, hey, this is actually something I can do. This isn't just like a, you know, here in the States when we were kids, we had paper paper routes and things like that, you know, but we, sure. we never thought that it was going to be a career. It was just something to do, like mowing your neighbor's yard. But when, when you're... <laughs> which, which is why I got into refereeing. I had a paper route and the, and the papers, honest to God, the papers had to be delivered by, by 6.30 a.m. Oh, it's too early. And... <laughs> I'm not a morning guy, and I just my buddy said, "Hey, why don't you come referee hockey?" And I go, "Well, yeah, why not? I, I hate delivering newspapers." Yeah, uh, I, I must have missed my call. You can't see Dennis's face; uh, he's laughing though because uh, I don't do six thirty in the morning. So no, never. <laughs> That's why I never had a paper route. <laughs> but I guess I yeah. should have become a, a referee. But but that, my question really is: Is that when it first sort of? entered into your mind like wow this could be a career or was it still like hey man i'm just a kid i'm just having fun and i don't know what i'm gonna do and this is just something great you know to put a little money you know in my what? pocket uh, i don't think i mean and i always try and teach this when i was teaching referee schools i, I think you always want to have small attainable goals and not this sort of pipe dream goal because if you have this pipe dream goal it, it's really tough sometimes when you have a setback to really stay motivated so i think when i was when i was in a linesman in the queue I was, I was, my goal was to just become a linesman in the American Hockey League. We had a team in Sherbrooke, and that was the Winnipeg Jets farm team. And that was sort of the next step. I mean, I never thought I could be refereeing because I was still young, and I assumed referees were older. So my goal was to be a linesman in, in the American Hockey League. And then when I went to that referee school, and they hired me on like as a trainee and as a referee, my goal was just to get a contract. I just wanted to be a full-time referee in the minors. Making the NHL really, I mean, that was a pipe dream, but the next step was getting getting signed to that contract. And that's what I, I mean, honestly, I worked 120 games a year back then, which is a lot of hockey when you're traveling between games. We're not, we're not talking back-to-back games in your hometown rink. I mean, I was on the road 26, 27 days a month. Which, which is kind of cool because I didn't have to pay rent anywhere. I was just on the road the whole time. <laughs> and, Dave, you mentioned- um, and I got per diem, so I was just going to say, you you mentioned 
you mentioned grew up in Montreal. So we always talk about players, first times, first NHL game. So, but, but for you, what was it like to officiate first time a game in Montreal in your hometown? It was surreal because uh, that was still back at the old Montreal Forum. And for those that haven't been there, that might've been one of the greatest buildings in hockey. Um, just the mystique and the, the smell, the, the whole aura of the arena was just incredible. And I never really got to do a game in Montreal. So the way it works is once you sign a deal uh, contract, they bring you up and they kind of handpick your game. So I spent four years in the minors on contract. And I think I did, you know, first year, zero games. Next year was one game. Uh, my third year was nine games. And then I did 27 games. And then I finally went full time. In those four years of doing part-time NHL, I never once did the Montreal Canadiens. I think that was kind of intentional on their part. And don't forget, it was one referee as well. So there was, a, there was a lot of pressure on a single referee, especially young and working in his hometown. So when I finally got my first game, it was the uh, fall of 93, which was my first year full-time NHL. And Montreal had won the Stanley Cup in the spring of 93. So Yeah, you had, wait, hold on, hold on. You can't just slip that in on an L.A.-based podcast that the Canadians <laughs> won the Stanley Cup in 93. The Stanley Cup they should have never won. I apologize. Oh, Dave, you're killing I, me I was, right now. I was, <laughs> I was being insensitive, but I, I will. I mean, it, my wife's from L.A., so, uh, you know. Well, you I've, did one I've thing always, right, Dave. I've always learned to be uh, <laughs> fairly sensitive around that subject. But, yeah, <laughs> they won that Stanley Cup um, in five games over the Kings. <laughs> and um, <laughs> just Yeah, there you go. Just keep elaborating. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so the, that fall, I, I was fortunate enough they assigned me the home opener. And I got to stand on ice center ice as they raised the uh, Stanley Cup banner. Oh, man. And um, it was, you know, I chills down my spine. And then, you know, 60 minutes later, I was accused by Montreal media of picking on the home team to prove it wasn't a homer and game on. There's a lot of your career um, that we can get to, but let's let's sort of fast forward to the end here for just a quick minute. A uh, quick minute, excuse me. So uh, it was March of 2018. Things came full circle for you. Uh, you get to Los Angeles and it's going to be your final game officiating in the National Hockey League. I do just want to set the stage for a minute, though, and tell everybody that you and I uh, met each other about three or four years prior to that. I was in Denver uh, going to a drag race, actually, and a friend of yours brought you out to the races and, and he knew who I was and, and, and he introduced the two of us and was like, hey, you two are going to hit it off. You guys are both hockey guys. And we did hit it off. I introduced you to a bunch of the drivers. We, we had a great time and uh, we sort of stayed in touch. But then I have to tell you, your final game, um, I've never told this story publicly before. You invited me into the referee room. At, is that what it's called? The, offici the officials room? The referee room? What's it called? Yeah, yeah the referee's room. Okay, the referee's room, uh, which, of course, yeah. at Staples Center, I've, uh, at the time it was Staples Center. It wasn't crypto yet. I'd never been in the room before because I'd never had a reason to be invited into the room. Uh, right. Been in many other areas of the building, of course, but never been in that room. And I had been in there a few times uh, to say hi to you through the years when you would stop into, L you know, in Los Angeles and you were doing a game. But that particular night, I, I just have to tell you, from my perspective, I'm sure you had a lot of emotions. It, it was like living in two separate sides of my brain at the same time. On one hand, I was very honored that you had invited me in. It's a small room. It's a tiny room. There, there's, you know, 10 people in the room at the most. It's only made for four people, but there's, you know, you yeah. invited, <laughs> your, your family's in there. So I'm very honored. That is a 
let, just let me interject. Sure. That's a massive room compared to the referee's room in the old L.A. bar. Okay, well, <laughs> put it this way. It's, it's a very uh, quaint, uh, cozy room. And uh, so I'm very honored to be there. But I was also very uncomfortable to be in there because I felt like this was the crowning achievement of your career. And you're there with your family. And then there's me. And I'm just like, hi. <laughs> No, it was an honor to have you there. I mean, the more the more the merrier. I mean, you know, you you were there legitimately happy for me. Um, I can't think of all the other people that would have loved to have been there just to say, okay, we're taking your skates away and it's your last <laughs> game. We're just making sure. <laughs> well, I, I greatly appreciate it. I was, uh, to this day, it's uh, really, truly one of the honorable experiences that I've had in the game um, it, because it's, it's behind the curtain that, 99.9% of the people involved in the game will never get to experience. So Dennis and I talk a lot about as members of the media, how privileged we are to, you know, go in the room, talk to players after a game or to be on the ice for the Stanley cup or a lot of these just different things uh, that we get to experience. And we're very honored and privileged to be able to do that. And we appreciate that. But I just wanted to publicly thank you because that was uh, w- wow. What an experience to be there. Um, I can't even imagine what was going through your mind in that particular moment as you, a moment ago, were telling us about when you, you know, didn't even have a contract. You're being paid per game, and you're in the you're in the junior hockey leagues. And then all of a sudden, now, you know, decades later, you're retiring from the National Hockey League. When you think back to that night, now, did did everything go exactly the way that you expected it to go? Because I'm sure in the weeks leading up to it, you would kind of built up in your mind what the final game would be like. Did it go the way you expected, or when you look back on it now, is it a different different experience? Well, you know what, you get to, you sort of get to select your, your final game and your final date. And uh, normally you don't, you don't wait right till the end of the season. I mean, the games, there's some games in that final weekend that are just too important, right? You know, teams are fighting for their playoff life. So you, you like to kind of pull the shoot about two weeks before the season ends, which, which is what I did. And when I chose that game, if I'm not mistaken, L.A. was comfortably in first or second place. And uh, Arizona was, was out of the playoffs. And by the time the game came around, L.A. had gone on a losing streak. And I believe they were like a point in or a point outside the playoffs. And so the game meant something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, a, it was a really important game, which, which I hadn't factored into that when I figured it would be my final game. You know, it would be sort of my, my farewell uh, goodbye. And then I realized this game's not about me. This game is about one of these teams coming out here with two points, and I better be on my game. Um, which was really cool because it didn't allow me to think, uh, you know, to go back and, you know, uh, to think about my past and my journey and everything. My focus was strictly on this game at hand, which was kind of cool. Um, I didn't have time during the game to sort of look in the crowd and take it all in and see where my family was sitting. It was, it was a hockey game. I believe it ended up 2-1. And... Um, I was I was happy for that because when that game ended, I felt I did a good job and I ended my career on a great hockey game. It wasn't a you know it wasn't a ten one blowout or something. Um, and then everything afterwards was just it was kind of surreal. It didn't really set in until I got to bed that night, um, laid in bed and just stared at the ceiling. And then it kind of hit me that I'm never going to have to put that gear on again. And it was it was it was bittersweet. I was happy with what I'd accomplished, and I was sad that it had come to an end. Dave, let's get the rules on us, some rules. Let's go. So, t- so Dave, uh, why is everybody upset about the offside rule when it's black? To me, 
and with the technology, I submit to you, it's and you're the perfect person to talk to. It should be the easiest call. It's a boundary call. Either it's on or off. It's black or white. Yet people, every time, and especially with the Zegers goal 10 days ago, oh, we got robbed of that. We've had, I think, 44 goals taken away. I think we've scored 2,155 goals. That's 2%. So why do you think it's so inflammatory? Why there's such polarization on the offside rule right now? Well, I, I I think part of it is that the rule was never intended to fix a millimeter offside. We we all know, we all saw that play with I think it was Duchesne in Colorado when he right. scored a goal and it was like 15 feet offside the puck went over and everybody was like oh we can't allow that to happen again we have to we have to fix that somehow and I agree things like that should be fixed I don't think we ever thought it was kind of a slippery slope I don't think we ever thought we'd be micromanaging inches at the blue line and the other thing people don't like is that sometimes it has zero effect on the play. You know, a guy's offside 30 seconds earlier. Um, I think that's what, what upsets people the most. But I'm not sure how to fix it. If, if you're going to bring in a rule, you can't pick and choose how, how you're going to apply it. It's either, you know, right. if people talk about a, a flashing or a tripping. Well, yeah, he tripped him, but, you know, his teammate got the puck. Or he, I mean, people either want to call black and white or let everything go. So... <laughs> I think I love it the way it is. You get the call right. Um, right. And like you said, Dennis, it's, it's, it's pretty black and white. It's, there's a line. There's a boundary. The cameras are exceptional. They're high, uh, high def. And they get the call right. And that's what we all want, isn't it? Along those lines, what's the most difficult rule or the most misunderstood rule from maybe fans and media perspective when you're a referee that just makes you want to pull your hair out uh, when people talk about it or even players for that or coaches for that matter. Goalie interference. How would you, how would you help the listeners right now? Educate the listeners then on, on what, what they're missing or what they need to know. Well, for one thing, people don't understand there's a big difference as to where the contact occurs, whether it's in the blue paint or outside the blue paint. And even further to that, people don't seem to understand this. This blows people's minds sometimes is the crease is not one dimensional. It's not just on the ice. The crease extends all the way up to the crossbar. So if a play, if a goaltender has, for example, half his pads and his feet in the crease, but his upper body is all sprawled across or breaking that plane, he could be on his knees upright and his entire upper body is breaking that plane of this so-called 3D crease. He's no longer in the crease if that's the part of the body getting contacted. Hmm. People don't realize that to begin with. Um, if it's outside the crease, and we tell players, stay outside the blue paint. If a player is outside the blue paint and he is doing nothing intentional to make contact, he's facing the, the, the blue line, he's facing the shot, he's trying to get out of the way of a shot, and he ends up making accidental contact with a goaltender's head, with a goaltender's glove, and that glove is outside the crease, then it's not goalie interference. We protect goaltenders inside their blue paint. Once they venture out, any incidental or accidental contact is just play on. So, for example, you would have a uh, defenseman in front of the net. If you came up and you pushed that defenseman slightly with his with your shoulder, and it's not worthy of a penalty, I'm saying you don't you know you don't cross check him in the head and knock him down to the ice. You just bump with him. That bump is allowed, and the same thing happens with a goaltender outside the crease. Players are allowed to fight for their own ice. 
And I think that's the biggest thing fans don't understand. And when it comes to plays in the crease, if that puck is loose in the crease, a player is allowed to go for that loose puck, even if it means contact in the goaltender. He just can't prevent the goaltender from doing his job. So I know that still is a very gray explanation, but it's very salient points that I don't think people realize. So Dave, uh, I think the one that's in front of mind of most people is the uh, Connor Hellebuck play against Dallas. And Winnipeg people need to, they didn't get screwed because they won the game. So I don't know why you're complaining that much because Marcy came down and made a yep. great play in overtime. But but your, your feelings, I, I, and Craig Butt was on TSN, said very eloquently, it's the right call according to the rule. So Correct. does the rule need to change a little bit for safety because we're talking about safeties of, of goaltenders? Just your thoughts on that particular play in context of the way the rule is written right now. Well, I really like how they've changed the wording of that rule over the years. Like when I was on the ice four or five years ago, the rule said if a goaltender's mask comes off during the play and the shooter is in the act of shooting, the play shall be allowed to continue. And that was a very um, that was a, a very black and white type rule. It didn't allow for the puck coming to a guy's stick who had an open net and you couldn't allow that goal. Right. Uh, so they changed those, the wording, they made it a little more ambiguous, but intentionally ambiguous to say, I believe it's immediate or imminent scoring opportunity, which I like because that puts, that puts the judgment back in the referee's hands. Mm -hmm. And the biggest fear, and I understand there's a player safety issue. The biggest fear is that goaltenders will knock their helmet loose to get a topic. And, I know it's easier said than done. I know those helmets stay on pretty good. And I, I'm all for player safety. But there's a fine line between how do we police helmets coming up to prevent a scoring chance and allowing a team to legitimately score a goal they, sh- they should score. So I think the rule was applied as the rule book is written. And the judgment now is up to the referee. And you've got 35 referees. Everyone's got a different judgment on what is an imminent scoring opportunity. Sure. So, you know what? It's it's a gray area, and how many times a year does it happen? Like you said about the offside reviews, it doesn't happen a whole lot. Dave, uh, if memory serves me correctly, also you had officiated in the Olympics, and I'm always curious when it comes time for the World Juniors or the Olympics or any of the international competition, which is very exciting from my perspective, but I would imagine it's also very challenging from – an officiating perspective because your, your whole life, every day, every game, you're, you're in one rule book and it becomes like muscle memory, right? So it's very easy for you to a certain extent. And then when you go internationally, there are little tweaks in the rules. What's, what's the preparation like? How challenging is that? So you're headed to the Olympics. What do you have to do to get ready for those, those, those different rules, if you will? Well, I think people make more of that than there really, there really is to it. Uh, When you've been doing the NHL for as long as, I I was, and then as most guys do, you kind of know that rule book inside out. It's it's second nature, or at least it should be. Uh, You read it all the time. It's something you repress yourself on all the time. When you go and do the Olympics or World Juniors, there's really a there's not that many rule changes that are not just housekeeping rules. As far as the game on the ice, there's there's only a handful of changes. You just focus on those. You just keep reminding yourself. You go over it before the game. And it comes to you pretty easy during the game. And the other thing about which I found was, I'm not saying it's an easier game to referee, but the bigger ice surface means the players are a lot more spread out. 
there's there's you seem to have an extra second to react to things, which is kind of neat from a referee's perspective. But I, I don't think it's maybe as intense as watching an NHL game on a slightly smaller rink. Dave, I want to talk about the dynamic of a two referee crew, and and you hear from fans all the time. Penalties called. The guy right in front of the play doesn't make the call, and this is what you hear in the stands. The guy's 100 feet away, and he makes that call. So just explain to, to the fans the dynamic and why that does occur. You know, what's funny is I, I, I can remember many times making that call from center ice and the coach saying to me, you know, your partner was five feet away. And I would, I would say to the coach, well, was it, was it not a penalty? And the coach would go, well, yes, it was. Yes, it was, but you should let him make the call. And then we both got to have a chuckle about it. Uh, for people that don't referee and people that have never had the opportunity to be down at ice level, say like, uh, seats by the glass or stand by the Zamboni, you, they, you just have, they have no idea how fast that game is and how bad the sight lines are. And that's why we always talk about like, referees miss a lot of calls, but very few of them are, are – there's not a reason why they miss them. And a lot of times it's because of sight line. And sometimes it's bad luck. So a guy can be five feet from a play – and he's, he's puck focused, or he might be, um, he might be looking. The guy's coming in making a check with his stick up, so he's looking for a high stick, and he's really close to it, and he's not looking at the guy's feet to where you know he'll slip with a guy or something. So sometimes you get a much better perspective from 100 feet away, and, and that's all I can say. You know, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees, and that's how it is on the ice. Sometimes you're just too close to something, and you don't catch it the way you should. We had Kerry Frazier on a number of years ago, and we talked about, of course, the one that got away, the call that got away, which I guess we can reference back to your comments earlier. It was 1993 and, uh, you know, the Gretzky call uh, in in the semifinals against Toronto. But for you, what's the one that got away? What's what's that call that keeps you up at night that if you had a magic wand, you could erase the YouTube video that's out there of of the call that you either, you know, the, yeah, that's it. What's the one that got away, Dave? Oh, we don't have enough time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's nothing keeping you up at night these days, then. Oh well, you know what? I mean, there's honestly there is there's more than two handfuls of calls that, if I reflected back, I mean, as referees, you get paid to get the call right. Mm-hmm. So it's not like a player to where you go, "What was your most favorite goal?" or "Or the best play ever made." I mean, we're supposed to make. We there's no such thing as us making good calls because we're supposed to make the calls that are there. So, so we tend to focus as a community on the calls we miss. And those are the ones that sort of keep you awake at night. And I look back to, uh, it was probably high sticks. I called when it was turned out to be a follow through or possibly a major penalty that, that you missed. Um, and now when I think of the ability to review a high stick or review a major penalty, I just think back and go, man, I would have loved to have had that opportunity back in back in the day because those calls truly do keep you up at night. And the public in general sometimes seems to think that when a referee makes a bad call or misses a call, that they just go happily on their way and on to the next game. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Those calls haunt you. You stay awake at night. You, 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 you replay them over and over and over in your head. And you're really mad at yourself because – I know the guys. I've worked the job. I, you have so much pride. You want to get it right every single call. So let's have some fun and go a different direction then. Um, 
chirping. It's part of the game. Uh, the Kings have a, a pretty good one in Drew Doughty. Who's the best chirper that you've ever heard? Because you talk about the sight lines aren't good, but man, from an audio perspective, you have the best seat in the house. You get to hear all the smack talk. You get to hear all the little little conversations that take place on the ice. So who was the all-time best chirper in your opinion? Well, Doughty's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> some other chirpers, you know, Kelly Chase was good. Um, Steve Ott. Steve Ott had a million one-liners. Uh, I remember him coming out of the box one time. I gave him a seminar misconduct, and he came out of the box and made a point of just, you know, really giving big stretches, like like he's yawning and everything. And I, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm just stretching. He goes, the other team's pissed off at you because uh, they're all tired now, and you gave me a 10-minute rest, and I got to You know, and, uh, yeah. funny story. I was in Boston Garden once. I was young in my career, and this uh, young player, um, Rosica, I think his name was, came across the blue line. He snapped the puck right at the blue line, hit the crossbar, bar down, and the goalie never even moved. I mean, the goalie, I still don't think I've seen the puck. And we get to center ice, and I'm about to drop the puck. And Peter Duras is the center for the Bruins. And I just sarcastically, I said to Peter, I go, man, that goal reminds me when I used to play the game. And he looked at me without missing a beat and said, I didn't know you were a goaltender. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's a good one. So, Dave, along the lines of what you just referenced, you mentioned there's 35 different referees, and you are one of them. And for you, what's the line that's crossed to get to get somebody a 10 minute misconduct? Well, you know, misconducts are truly penalizing the player and not the team. Um, a two minute unsportsmanlike, we hand those out. But I mean, I think, I think even the guys now today. I think each referee could count on one hand and maybe even last how many unsportsmanlike likes to hand out during this season. Uh, the swearing's part of the game. There's a lot of swearing that goes on on the ice. It's when it gets personal. It's, it's when you insult the guy. It's when you, um, we all know the words that you just can't use today. And that's, that is when you cross the line and you, you assess two or 10. 10 minute misconduct are more used when it's a behavior type issue, when, when a guy is, excuse me, when a guy's trying to get uh, things going and sort of get the game going and maybe get guys goading them into fights, that's when you give them 10 to just sort of simmer things down. Two is more personal. Two is when it's a verbal assault on you and you just, you know, you over the line. But, you know, a lot of swearing happens and it's funny. There's been, I, I seldom swore at players, but there's an odd time I did swear. And players would take it. But the odd time, I had a coach call me over and say, did you swear at my player? And I was quite honest. I said, yeah, I did. You know, you can't do that. And I said, you know, you know what? You're right. And I apologize for that. The next time he swears at me, I'll just give him two instead. And then they would usually laugh and smile and go, oh, it's okay. Say what you want to. So, I mean, they never really put it in. in it, it, it's funny. They expect that their player should have some leeway to swear but then when you do it it's sort of it's against the rules but the alternative is not something they want either so yeah it's a real fine it's a real fine line there first of all thank you for your time dave it's been awesome to uh to catch up and That's hopefully it. the fans have really enjoyed um hearing your story and you know we we interview a lot of uh people on the program but they're they're players or they're typically in hockey management so this is really an opportunity to go behind the curtain and uh hear from a different you know, sort of side of the game of hockey. I'm curious now, you know, you've hung up the skates. We talked about that and you're, you're no longer on the ice, 
But how much fun are you having now? And how different is the role at ESPN in terms of how has it evolved? Because I'm sure that when they first pitched it to you and when you were first hearing about it and getting involved, uh, that it, it, it sort of changed over time, right? As you become more comfortable, as the network becomes more comfortable and, and figuring out how to use this uh, you know, type of role, just can you what, what can you share with us at all about this journey that you've had in very early days compared to your long, long career on the ice? But how much how much fun are you having working at ESPN and, and in this role? Well, I tell you what, I can promise you my judgment right now is way better than ever it was when I was on the ice. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. You have the benefit of video, so of course. Yeah. Uh, the great thing is when I'm wrong, I don't cost the team the game. Um, that's kind of neat. Um, it's funny because I would sit on the couch uh, when I was retired, even when I was working, and I, I would watch situations be explained, and I, I'd be pulling my hair out going, that's not right. Like, I'd love to be on TV doing that, and then I got my wish, and then I realized awfully quickly that you can only get 15, 20 seconds, 30 seconds at the most sometimes, and you've got you know, to be concise. And uh, I realized early on that I'm going to have to really work on that because I left, early on, I left, um, my explanations out there I found and I really frustrated with myself thinking I just created more questions than I answered and that was that was a real um, task for me to try and explain what I wanted to explain in a, in a short amount of words short amount of time I mean I'm envious of the football guys because those reviews sometimes they have four minutes and there's so much more I want to say but it's it's tough sometimes because you don't have enough time to really say what you want to say. So that that, that, that that was the biggest hurdle for me at first. And I think just gaining the trust of these established broadcasters, they've been doing it for years. And all of a sudden they're being told, well, you know what? I know you know the rules, but you got to come to this guy and ask his opinion. And they didn't know me. And I think I had to go through a bit of a period to where I earned their trust and realized that I wasn't going to, you know, send the whole broadcast off on its side on, off on the rails. So it was definitely a, a steep learning curve. And I'm really enjoying it right now. It's um, It culminated, obviously, last year in the finals where I, I got to be I, – I do most of my games from home. I have a small TV studio in my office. and uh, But being at the games live in the finals was, was just great. The electricity and the, you know, the intensity was it's just unmatched. Well, Dave, I love to give out advice to our guests, so I'm going to give you some as well. People can follow you, first of all, on Twitter, which is uh, ESPN Ref NHL. That's Dave Jackson. Pretty easy to find, ESPN Ref NHL. And my advice is this. The NHL uh, Player Safety Department, they put out these great videos with explanations of suspensions and fines and penalties and all that stuff. So if you're doing a broadcast and you think that you have more to say, but you didn't have enough time during the broadcast, um, just whip up a video real quick, drop it on your Twitter. Here's an explanation. And, and you do a hashtag of the team. The fans are going to find it and people are going to start following you on Twitter for a greater explanation. Uh, you know, you can do a little two minute video. It's pretty easy. So there you go. Free it's, advice. It's funny. It's funny you say that because my kids keep telling me that I put out a video last spring. You remember that offside, uh, disputed offside that Kale McCarr scored against Edmonton? Of course. Yep. Well, I went to my local hockey rink with a hockey stick and a puck, and I did a two-minute video explaining why that was a good call. And I had half a million views on Twitter. Okay, well, then you need to pin that tweet to the top of your Twitter feed so that everybody sees it. (laughs) 
Exactly. Or I just need to make more videos going forward. Yes, that too. Also, there you go. You could do, you could even start, you know, you could start with just maybe one video a week if you want, or one video a month, you know, go back to your early days. Remember what you said, like, you don't like to have big aspirations. You're, you're a crawl, walk, run guy. So when you were a linesman, you just wanted to go one rung up the ladder. So one video a month and then eventually one video every week and then eventually one video every game. See, I'm, I'm here to help Dave. <laughs> Well, I appreciate it. I really do. And I will take it to heart. Uh, Dave, we appreciate you coming on today. Uh, in all seriousness, it was uh, it was fantastic. I always enjoy catching up with you. And uh, I learn something every time um, that we speak. And I certainly uh, I think both Dennis and I learned today. And uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll be playing your clip of goalie interference uh, at some point later in the season. I hope we don't have to, but we will we will save the audio and reference that uh, if there's an interference call that uh, the fans need explanation on. So thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. We look forward to uh, hearing more of you on on ESPN. And again, everybody, go follow him on Twitter, ESPN Ref NHL. He's at 6,200 followers. Let's let's see how high we can get that number. Thanks, Dave. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Take care. We'll be back right after the break with more Kings of the Podcast. to the third period of Kings of the Podcast with DB and the Mayor. Well, welcome back, third period, Kings of the Podcast. Uh, Dennis Bernstein, before we do the preamble to the third period, immediate reaction, if you can remember, uh, mm -hmm. the Dave Jackson interview that we did several hours ago. Um, what did you think about Dave Jackson there? Uh, very articulate. Um, I see why he's got the job at ESPN. Deathful explanations uh doesn't raise his voice doesn't get angry so yeah i thought it was great it's entertaining and informative and on some of the stuff i, I thought i knew and other stuff i loved his opinions on and aligned with most of them to be honest yeah i really enjoy talking to dave um very insightful person love hearing stories from him and, and would you know I, i'm open anytime to sit down uh, at a restaurant That's for an extended chat. period of time or uh you know at a bar whatever and just just hearing stories great i can do that with anybody that spent uh, decades in the game of hockey because they just have an endless sure. amount of stories and when you're a good storyteller you're a fun person to be around and he's a great storyteller so thanks to dave jackson for joining us now uh kings of the podcast listeners here's the deal we recorded the first two periods we recorded all three periods of this program actually earlier today it was going to the mixing table uh and we were about to mix it up and send it out and about 15 minutes after all hell broke loose dennis and uh yes. <laughs> i mean i mean it was the timing could not have been worse so we have i don't believe in the history of the program we have ever actually canned a period or a show that we've done uh whether it's good bad or ugly whatever it is we've mm -hmm. just we've put it out there and if put there out. was 
breaking news. We did another show. We made a judgment call today for the first time in the history of Kings of the Podcast, and we are re-recording the third period because we want to make this episode up to date and up to speed with what's going on. Sure. So after we did the first period, after we did the Dave Jackson interview, after we recorded the third period, the LA Kings canceled morning practice. The LA Kings uh, decided also that they were going to place uh, goaltender Cal Peterson on waivers, Dennis. Somewhere mm -hmm. lost in all of that also was the fact that Sammy Fagamo was sent back to the Ontario yes. Reign. I don't think that's the breaking news. So, so mm, Cal Peterson. News, no, so, okay. so here's what I was thinking we would do, DB. Uh, people want to hear our reaction. They want to get our take on the Cal Peterson situation. And I thought what we would actually do is do a mini recap of what everybody would have missed or what everybody did miss by us throwing out the original third period that we recorded. There were sure. um, So a quick mini recap, we'll get to Cal. There were two key things, two key topics that you and I debated for 20 minutes. One of them was Andre Kopitar, and one of them was, for the most part, Sean Dursey, but it really was more about the defense. Here's what I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak on. My thought was, hey, look, the offense is fine. If you're looking at the offense, they're scoring a lot of goals, they're getting it done uh, offensively, and they need really help on the mm -hmm. defense and the goaltending side, which, again, we'll get to. However, I did want to acknowledge something that's being... Uh, kind of said a lot uh, on social media and that, it, and, and I think that some of the concepts aren't bad. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to them. And I say this with all due respect. So I'm going to preface it with the fact that Andre mm -hmm. Kopitar, in my opinion, is a hall of fame player. Uh, obviously everybody knows the accolades here in Los Angeles, a two time Stanley cup champion, a multi-award winner uh, and nominee, et cetera. He'll have a statue outside Staples center. His number will go to the rafters, et cetera, et cetera. For all great players though, Dennis, at some point, father time catches up and it start. It, mm -hmm. you need to start to transition. Uh, this is not to say that Andre Kopitar's career is at the end, but it certainly is closer to the end than it is to the beginning. He's 35 years old. Does he need to be the number one center as a 35-year-old player? And does he need to be the number one guy uh, or does he need to be on the number one power play unit? And does he need to be the number one guy over the boards come overtime? And the, this has been in the back of my mind since the Chicago Blackhawks game because Jonathan Taves is now a second-line center for the mm -hmm. Blackhawks. And in the past, I've referenced guys like Shane Doan and that sort of thing, and more recently, Dustin Brown, guys who moved down the lineup. Uh, Kopitar doesn't need to have his minutes cut to 12 minutes a night, DB, but yeah. emotionally, spiritually, just visually, for this team to take the next step – it might be time to acknowledge that this team is no longer the Kopitar, Quick, and Dowdy team. They're still on the team. They still might be the core three part of the original core four, but it might be okay to let somebody else, to let Phil Deneau be the number one center. It might be okay to let another team roll over the boards as the first group over on a power play uh, or even in overtime. Reaction, thoughts. Well, God, I feel like I, Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. Reaction, yeah. Dennis. Reaction. Well, a couple of things with respect to how he's the well, first things first. I, I know people saying, oh, Phil Deneau's line is the first line. No question. Well, Kopitar still has more points than Phil Deneau. So I, I, here's the deal. When you have right now Kapari and Lazat as your three and four centers, they're each playing 11 minutes a night. Okay, so let's do the math. 60 minutes minus 11 minus 11 is 38. 38 divided by two is 19. Kopi's not playing 15 minutes a night. He's not playing 13 minutes a night. Right now, he's averaging 20. So you're talking about a couple of shifts changing it around. I get it. Plus, Kopi's been amazing in the faceoff circle. 
I mean, he's way better than Phil right now. He's 58.8. I think five on five, he's 63% wins on five on five. So he's a vital part of this team. Yeah, if you want to spell him, and, and I've asked Todd about this numerous times over the last season, like with Joe Drew and Kobe, can you get away with playing Drew 27 minutes a night and Kobe 20 minutes, 20? So far, I think you can. And I know that this take on, oh, well, you can't put Kopitar and, and Dowdy in the overtime anymore. First of all, it's overtime. It's a crapshoot. Second of all, the team that is tied for the most losses in overtime are the Toronto Maple Leafs. You know who they put out for overtime? Austin Matthews, John Tavares, Mitchell Marner, who leads the league, in, I think, in scoring, and William Nylander. And they still lose. Like, so the, the stuff about, oh, Todd's a bad coach because he puts Kopey and Drew out there. Drew made a pitch he never should have made. It's not because he's old and he's finished. He made bad judgment. And if Drew's going to make bad judgments, how, everybody's going to make bad judgments. I think it's the mentality and approach to playing defense that's the challenge and the issue. I don't have a problem with it. And if Kopey's, you know, numbers went to 18 minutes a night, wouldn't have a problem with it. He might welcome it. But he's still a vital part of this team. And some nights he's their best center. Like other nights, it's filled to know. That's the luxury that this team has. So people trying to spin it into a negative. It's a luxury to have Kopitar and Dano, who are great in the faceoff circles, whose IQs are off the chart. It, it's part of the reason they do win games is to have those. So you can call it what you want, John, if you want to take him down to 18 minutes. on. It's not going any lower than 18. Like He's still a vital part of the team. So he's not being put out the pasture. And, he, and that's not what you're suggesting either. No, it's not. Is it? Is it transitioning? Yeah, just from an age standpoint, right, too. Phil's still... Under 30 years old, Kobe's 34. So it's going to happen. And you mentioned it happened with Dustin Brown. It's going to happen with Andre. It's it's not there every night where you're going to say, okay, Kobe's now definitively the 2C. Like, that's not happening yet. On some nights, yeah, well, that's good for the team. Here's what I'm wondering. Spiritually, does it say something to see Andre Kopitar slotted in second? Does it put more pressure on some of the younger players, on some of the other players, even on a Phil Deneau, who we know is just, he seems to be taking on as much leadership as they can possibly give him, right? He seems to be taking on as many minutes mm -hmm. as they'll possibly give yeah. him, give them, give him, excuse me. He he just, he relishes in this moment. He's he's waited for this. And he's he was so open about it when he first came to Los Angeles and he, he was able to thrive in his first year and doesn't seem to be slowing down in the second year. What what does it say or do spiritually uh, for for the team, for the for the group? to see Kopitar as the 2C, yeah. does it signify that it's the future and the future is now? Uh, yeah, yeah. It, to some extent it does, but and it doesn't add any additional pressure to Danell because if you talk to Phil once, he's cool. He, he His he's, demeanor, yeah. it, he's, he's flat, he's straight, like no problem, happy to be here, happy to be out of Montreal, happy not to be recognized on the streets every day as a hockey player. Montreal. Oh, Dennis, get it straight for this episode. Montreal. Mon yeah, Montreal. Exactly. Come on now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we should have asked so him to say no. <laughs> da -da. Exactly. <laughs> da -da. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I don't think emotionally it's going to say, oh, Kobe's not. Look, there's a faceoff to be won with a minute left in a game in the defensive zone. It, it's more likely right now for it to be Kopitar than to know. His status on the team isn't going to really change much. It, the, where it may change is in the time on ice column, but it's about effectiveness. It, it, I assume that Kopitar would be an effective player 18 minutes a night as opposed to 20 that he's playing right now. Does it make that much of a difference? No. It puts pressure on one player, uh, Mayor, when, and when he comes back, it, it's Quentin Byfield. Right, because mm -hmm. if it, it, that that's the guy. If if Kopitar is going to be a less effective offensive player, 
I think QB's got to be got to be the supplemental guy because it's not going to be Blake Lazat. Then Blake Lazat's the, the force. And remember, beginning of the season, Byfield and, and Velarde, they worked great together. So I think the most pressure would not be on Dano, it would be Byfield when he returns because and it's going to be okay. Kobe can't give us the guy. He's not going to lead this team in scoring like he has the last decade. We yes. need more from you, QB. So I think that that's where it's going to be impactful with respect to an emotional or a mental uh, approach to what this team needs to do. Yeah, I think that Q has to deliver. Velarde had to deliver coming in. He's been doing his part. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, you know, you need to die a follow to be effective. That was a big yeah. third line coming into the season. And Todd yep. talked about that here on the podcast, actually, that he expected big things from I follow QB and Velarde. That's a rock solid third line. Now, when everything went haywire earlier in the season, he moved Fiala down to the third line. Um, I, I've gotten to the point where I do like Velarde more with QB. It seems to be working a little bit better. Excuse me, with uh, with Kopitar, it did seem to be working better. While it seems on paper odd that you would have Fiala down on the third line, it did balance out the offense. But I, I, I want to just say this, Dennis. The offense is fine. The offense is scoring as many, yeah. you know, uh, w- w- I think you pointed it out uh, uh, to me the other day that uh, w- is it Edmonton and the Kings? They're scoring the same number of goals or something? Yeah. Coming into Wednesday night, they averaged the exact amount of the Kings have played a couple more games. They've averaged the exact amount of goals offensively, so they've scored okay. about average the same thing. And and with Gabe, the one caveat here is Gabe is shooting twenty four percent. Okay, he's not going to shoot twenty four. If he does shoot for twenty four percent for the season, he might win the Rocket Richard. So you gotta <laughs> you gotta expect a little of regression with respect to scoring. But I like him down on the third line because I, you know, John, if you want to talk about the future. The future Velarde with Byfield, not Velarde with Kopitar. So yeah, I, no, I would the future, the the future is Velarde, Byfield, and Kaliev. So the sooner we can get yeah. Kaliev off the fourth line, the sooner his agent's going to be happy. So <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, well, it doesn't matter if he goes out there for every two minute power play, he's going to score goals anyway. Absolutely. So. Well, yeah, I I think I tweeted this as well the other night that uh, Jim Hiller and uh, Kaliev they should be connected at the hip right now because <laughs> that's 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 Hiller's future uh, right there is getting getting Kaliev going. But look, the point to that story or to that conversation, Dennis, and, and thank you for that quick recap that we just did there. Uh, we condensed 18 minutes of arguing in, in the original <laughs> version down to just a couple of minutes. The offense is fine. I, I'm in favor of ratcheting the minutes back on Dowdy and Kopitar. Uh, I just think that's better for everybody, but that's not to condemn Kopitar or Dowdy as the problems on the team. I don't think they're the problems, nor do I think that ratcheting back the minutes for both of those veteran players is going to be the answer to turning the King season around. So the offense is fine. All right, moving on. Uh, Let's talk about the defense a little bit, because one of the points that I brought up to you earlier, and don't worry, people, we will get to the Cal Peterson uh, uh, waiver situation here, but the the point about Sean Dursey that I wanted to bring up is this. If we're being honest, okay, the defense starts and stops in the LA Kings with Mikey Anderson and Drew Doughty. Those are the two players that are keepers. And everything else below that is really, I think, up for debate and up for discussion about how mm-hmm. to utilize those players. And I think there are two players to key in on here, in my opinion. One is Alex Edler. Again, taking nothing thing, nothing away from his career, rock solid career. Look at his stats. Look at the look at the number of games played. Look at his career in totality. Wow, what a great player! One of the better defenders and uh, a defenseman of his generation, if you will. Yeah. Uh, at this point in his career, at thirty six years old, Dennis, he should not be playing every night. He should be playing every other night. He should be playing two mm-hmm. out of three games, and he Agreed. shouldn't be playing second pairing minutes. Uh, on on a consistent basis. So Edler needs to be spelled every once in a while. You need to get a lefty in there. I think Jacob Mavari has more than proven that he can play. 
Uh, and look, if you want to make a trade, make a trade. But I, I'm just talking about the parts and pieces that GM Rob Blake and coach Todd McClellan have available to them today. Because at the time of this recording, Dennis, and knock on wood, it doesn't happen in the next 15 minutes. They have yet to make a trade for Jacob Chickren right. or any other left-handed defenseman. So right. I think you have to play Mavari or you have to play Bjornfoot. At this point, I really don't care who it is. I could go either way. But you have to get a left-handed defenseman into the lineup. The Sean Dersey experiment, the Sean Walker experiment, enough is enough. It's time to end it. Dersey is not ready for that role yet. And the, the comparison that I want to give you is Alec Martinez. Alec Martinez was the perfect third pairing defenseman, perhaps the best third pair defenseman that the Kings have ever had in their history. Phenomenal. And at times he was asked to do more than he was ready and capable for. Mm -hmm. At times he was asked to play in the second pair. He was asked to play uh, up on the top pair even. And even later in his career, when he moved to Vegas, he was asked to take on more. That was later in his career, Dennis. People tend to forget that Sean Dersey has really only played, what is it, 84 games of NHL experience? Yep. So you're talking about a player who is a relatively young and inexperienced player. And I don't know how many times we've talked about on this podcast that defensemen and goaltenders, <laughs> ironically, develop at a, at a later stage, at an older age, compared to forwards. So Sean Dersey needs more time in development, okay? And uh, it... Just you're asking too much of Sean Dersey right now. He's not effective on the left side, and this is taking nothing away from Sean Dersey. You look at uh, the statistics, and he's one of the better performing uh, defensemen offensively from his draft class. He's top 10 for his draft class. So this isn't a criticism of Dersey as much as it is he's being misused. He's being miscast. And therefore, he's getting a little bit of a bad rap, Dennis. You need to play Bjornfoot. You need to play Jacob Mavar. You need to play somebody else on the left side. And then you need to figure out what you're going to do over on the right side and allow Jersey to grow into that role, much the same way that Alec Martinez was allowed to grow into that role. Yeah, Again, well, by Lee Hacksaw yeah. Hamilton. TV, reaction. <laughs> reaction. Immediate reaction. Okay, so Sean Jersey was playing the right side for the first eight games. And then they decided that Sean Walker, which I doubted was going to happen anyway, is not the left side defenseman that you play in the second pair. So Sean was pressed into service. Now, I know people are railing on Sean, and yes, he's made some mistakes. Uh, but it's not just Sean Dursey that's not working. It's that combination for whatever reason. You go back and look at Matt Roy's season. Last season, the entire season, Matt had, I think, 49 giveaways in the defensive zone. This season, he has 22. He's playing poorly as well. That combination, for whatever reason, on paper that like, might look good, it's not. It's bad defensively. So just not just say it's all Sean Dorsey and Tradem. Matt Roy has to be better, maybe better with a better pairing. That chemistry just is not working. The left side, yeah, I get it. Uh, you guys, and there's other people, Silva and Movari, he hasn't played enough for me. Like I, I would rather trust Alex Edler than Jacob Movari. I might be wrong. Uh, it's just it's, the body of work is in there for me, John. The, the mystery in all this is a guy who played 70 games last year, who's a first-round pick, who's a left-side defenseman. Like, where does Bjornfoot figure in here? Like, that, that other than not playing clock the 10th game, like, what's the, what is the reason that Bjornfoot all of a sudden is behind not only Edler, but now Muvari, and he's not, he's not the first option. To me, that would be the first option. It's... It's really confusing right now, and I think the the organization's confused right now, John, because it's it you, when you look at the deployment, it's not working, and so maybe they needed to hit the pause button today and really regroup and figure out what they want to do with the blue line because 
it's it's not working at all. I, I don't think that there's much confusion regarding Mavari and Bjornfoot. I think it's a coin flip. Uh, I, you, you know, we have one we have one call up really to look at here. So it could have been Bjornfoot versus Mavari. Mavari's a steady Eddie type player. Uh, both of those players still have a future in the organization. Bjornfoot probably has a better chance long term to play in the NHL than even Jacob Mavari does. Uh, yeah. Why? Why are they both stuck behind? Uh, the players, the seven players that started with the LA Kings to start the season? And the answer is quite simple. The Kings wanted to maximize the opportunity of the asset uh, that they had with Sean Walker. They wanted to give Walker an opportunity to come back. W Walker's the odd man out uh, at, at a very minimum. It might be more than Walker because to make room right. for all these players, including Clark and Spence and everybody else, you might have to clear out several players. But the at the top of the most immediate player that you know is most likely to leave the organization it would be Sean Walker for cap reasons and for other reasons. And they wanted to maximize the asset. Uh, I, I think it's, an, it's a noble thing to do. I think it's a great thing to want to give a player who gave so much to the organization. And it's such a great success story. A player who wasn't drafted. A player who was signed on an American League only deal. Dennis, this isn't a Blake Lazat who signed an NHL deal. This guy signed an American Hockey League contract coming out of mm -hmm. college and turned it into an NHL contract. Multiple NHL contracts. So good on Sean Walker. It's a great story. The reality totally. is that he's been... He has been leapfrogged on the depth chart um, by other players. And so if you're trying to maximize the asset, that's great. But at some point, you run out of real estate to be able to do that. And looking at the body of work, somebody's going to have to go because you have to clear a spot for Clark. You have to clear a spot for Spence. You have to clear a spot for Mavari or for Bjornfoot. You need some of these other players in there, which goes back to the point I was making earlier. Mikey Anderson and, and Drew Doughty, I think everybody can agree that those two players stay. I think any any combination of better players that's going to come, you won't find. You want to play Edler uh, on the second pair? Okay, fine. Play Edler. Um, but you need Mavari or Bjornfoot up to play left side on the third pairing. And then over a larger body of work, one of them is going to eventually, uh, you know, jump over Alex Edler and push him down to the third pair. I, I'm, I'm fine with that. But this, this mm. Jersey Roy Walker Edler grouping pairing, man, it's just not working out. And I don't know how much more evidence is needed that it's just not working out. Uh, well, look, they, they experimented for 25 games. Now you got to win games. And you've said this before, it's winning time, right? That, that's great. Yeah. And now, now you have to, and this did normally, look, normally in a regular season where you had, didn't have these defensive deficiencies, Rob and the team would be analyzing what they have right now. Anyway, to looking forward for the trade deadline, whatever. So, so the, the, that process of evaluation it's always going to be 25 games in, but now, like, what's the resolve? How do we, re what, what's the resolution to this? Because you're right, th this six, the way they're playing, it's not, it's not going to be good enough. And yeah, look, I thought, look, they are in a playoff spot. The other teams aren't playing great, but they have to figure this out. And the four they have right now in that rotation, in that grouping, it's not working. They have to come up with a different solution or try something different, at least at this point. Great. Yes. Try something different. Uh, if, if somebody smarter than me wants to convince me that this group of six should work, uh, okay, just put a pause on it and come back to it later. Uh, you have to try, you have to try something different. So um, that's yeah. what's going on. That's what's going on defensively, Dennis. And, and I, I just, I think there's a comparable there uh, between Alec Martinez and the early years of his career and Sean Dursey. Mm -hmm. They're different players. People don't get yep. caught up in the in, in the specific details. Yes, they're different players with different styles and everything else. But Dursey is just so offensively gifted 
and can quarterback the power play, et cetera. Uh, you know, every, he's as advertised. He, he needs work defensively. Well, then why are you going to give him second pairing minutes on the left side, on his offside? Yeah. And, and there's going to be growing pains there. I mean, you know, that, that stuff you should have worked out when he was in the American League and, and you should have given him an opportunity there. You can't at this point, you know, warts and all ask. I just think you're miscast. He's miscast is He's what miscast, I'm trying to say. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So he was so, pressed into service. He because was the, the theory they had about Walker didn't work and didn't work early. The one benefit is, okay, well, they got that out of the way. Now let's, they tried Sean and he's been, and players are never going to say, no, I can't do that. But Alf Martinez adapted to playing with the offside. It's a difficult thing to do, John. Like, and you mentioned the kids only got 83 games or 84 games in. And now, oh, go to the other side, play 20 minutes. Don't make any mistakes. Okay, sure. The, you wish. The one thing, and I forget who I asked this question to uh, recently, but one thing that was at least intriguing to me was, does it force Dersey to play better defense playing on his offside? In other words, when he's when he's on the right side, where he's been the majority of his career throughout junior and everything else, does he just sort of naturally go into Sean Dersey mode and he's offensively minded, et cetera? Mm -hmm. But then when you move him to the left side, does it force him because he's out of position to be more defensively responsible? That was a question that I had. And again, I guess maybe I'm being optimistic by asking that. But I think mm -hmm. that sometimes when you put somebody in an uncomfortable position, it makes them think more because they can't rely on just muscle memory. They're having to be present in the moment. I, I, I just think that's something to explore. Well, if it, if, it, if it forced him to make the simpler play, which is part of the issue, he, he's a home run hitter. So he swings for the fences a lot and it doesn't work and it hasn't worked. But And when it doesn't work, you see the Barabanov play. You see the opening night play with Mark Stone. They're... They're more egregious. I don't think he makes any more mistakes. And if you look at the numbers, he hasn't given away the puck defensive zone more than, than his partner has. But I, I think the one benefit, John, of doing that, to your point, would be he, it would make his game more simplistic because there's less he needs to do. And, less, and he knows, like, okay, I can't take risks here because I'm playing on my offside. There's certain things I can't do if I was on my natural side. But it just it, – it hasn't worked so far. So here's why. Just to finish this thought, and then we will get yeah. to Peterson – Perhaps it hasn't worked because, while he does play a simpler game at in moments, right, that in other moments he reverts back to Sean Dursey. He yeah, reverts back to sure. who he is, and so he's more offensively gifted, more offensively minded, yeah. and it, it, it doesn't work, and it creates more of a defensive problem. Um, so the problem that might have been, you know, a 6 out of 10 on the right side becomes a 9 out of 10 in that particular yeah. moment as he's on the offside. So there, there's a lot more to it. And again, Sean Dersey's not the only problem. You mentioned the challenges this year uh, with Matt Roy. So it's not just about Sean Walker. It's not just about Alex Edler. It's about that group of four. Group and there needs four. to be yep. some, some, some reshuffling of the deck there uh, among that. So I'm very intrigued and excited about how that's all sort of um, going to play out. Now, let's get to what happened earlier today as well. You had Cal Peterson going on waivers, which, Dennis, I just want to first ask, was it as shocking to you as it was to me to see Cal Peterson on waivers? Yeah, I was driving to El Segundo for Kings practice, and Dave Panyota texted me. He goes, dude, dude, like they wait <laughs> Peter. I'm like, what? They yeah. wait Peterson? Like, can you retweet that for me? I go, yeah, I'm driving right now, so I can't really yeah. do that. <laughs> yes, it was. The first was, thing you probably was, asked was, did that come from a, le a legitimate account? Because yeah, of all the right. problems like, on Twitter recently, you know. Exactly, exactly. Uh, it was a legitimate account. Uh, yes, it was account. shocking. Yeah, it was, it was shocking. It was, it's a, almost like a course of last resort, John. I mean, there's, there's a couple other things that could have been done, but. Uh, to answer your question, yes, it was a total shock to me. I didn't th think they would go in that direction. 
This is coming from a general manager who has been fairly conservative, um, fairly patient yes. uh, with his yes. players, with situations. And um, I think anybody that was being honest would acknowledge that there were challenges. I put an article out on Mayor's Manor. I put out all the stats so people that want to look at it, they can look at Cal's declining stats over the last five years since he first became an NHL player and the games played are there and everything else. He didn't have a good year last year, Dennis. No, nope, uh, but everybody flushed that year and came into this season, uh, Cal included and was ready for a better year. And we, Dennis, go back to the, the summer. What did I say was the X factor coming into the season? My money was on the X factor being Cal Peterson. Cal mm -hmm. had to yep. take the net this year. It was no longer about just talking about it. <laughs> I guess back to my point with Kopitar and, 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 and Dowdy and, and spelling their minutes a little bit, you needed to get quick, fewer games, not more games. And Cal Peterson would be the answer there that if Cal was able to take those minutes away or games away from quick, the Kings, I thought, would be better off. They have He has not been able to do that, and Cal Peterson is now on waivers. Dennis, do you agree? I do not see Cal Peterson being claimed. He's owed uh, over $10 million, so even though the salary this year is very low because he received a signing mm -hmm. bonus. So yeah. the way that the contracts works, just so that everybody knows, there are two aspects to an NHL contract. There's your cap hit, and there's your salary, right? So uh, your cap hit, is basically pretty simple to figure out. You you take the total value of the contract, all money's paid, regardless of how you're getting it, uh, whether it's a signing bonus or whether it's your you know annual salary, whatever. You lump it all together, and then you divide it by the number of years in the contract. So Cal Peterson was going to be owed $15 million uh, right. over three years. So $15 million divided by three is easy. It's $5 million. His cap hit is $5 million. But if you paid him let's just say a signing bonus of $3 million coming into the season. Signing bonuses are paid in July, by the way. So in July, if he received three of his $5 million, then the remaining salary on his contract is only $2 million, even though the cap hit is $5 million. You with me, Dennis? With you, John. Okay. So if this was the expiring year of his contract, which it's not, there are two more years remaining, but if it was the expiring yeah. year of his contract, while a team that would be acquiring him would need to get would need to have five million in cap space available to take on that contract. The owner is only going to be writing a check for two million dollars because right. the Kings would have already paid the signing bonus. So it's those kind of things that that can be important in negotiating a trade or 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 you know, uh, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess negotiating is yeah. the word I'm looking for. In in negotiating a trade with another team, it's it's not it's not only what is the cap hit, but it's actually like how much money are we actually going to have to pay him, and and if another team. Right has already paid a portion of it. So now it comes back to he's owed $5 million for the next two seasons. There's $10 million, but he's also owed whatever the remaining portion of this year is. With the term and with the money left on the contract, Dennis, and with the performance thus far, I don't see any team taking on that contract. Do you agree? Yeah. Okay. So if you go to advanced <laughs> stats, uh, goals saved above expected. The two, low, two of the lowest top 10 or Jonathan Quick and Cal Peterson. Only two goaltenders are given uh, have worse goals saved above expected. Elvis Merlikins and Thatcher Demko. Yeah, he's not getting picked up. Like you're going to pick up a, a that contract for a goaltender that's playing bad right now. That was bad last season. No, it, I, I don't. I don't see it. Short of some injury, and if even if there was, John, if I'm a GM somewhere else, like, let's put it this way, John. If you're a scout and they send you to LA to watch Cal Peterson. Saying, okay, uh, would you recommend us requiring Cal Peterson right now? What would you say with your job on the line? You would say absolutely not. It's not good. Now, the one saving grace, Sean, is that when he's going to clear, when he goes, 
everybody plays better in the AHL. So if anything, John, like his confidence, I assume would have to go up because I assume he's going to get some wins down there. He's going to play some better games. Yeah, lesser competition. But right now, he just needs to put a couple of W's on the board. And when he came in last night, the same thing. The the his confidence is shot. Like his body language is terrible. It's it's not good right now. And I would be stunned. I would put real money on the fact that he's clearing waivers. And that's part of the reason why, John, that the organization didn't make any comment today because he's on waivers. And if he gets claimed, it's a different conversation you have tomorrow. So the people criticizing the organization for not talking today about it, they really can't. They have to wait till the, the, the waiver status resolves itself. And then I'm sure Rob or somebody would be talking about it probably tomorrow, probably around midday. But Dennis, why do you sometimes need an organization to say something when the only thing they can possibly say is what you already know? So what what are they going to say? Here, let me let me give you. You ask me. I'm the general manager. I'm the coach of the L.A. Kings. You ask me about Cal Peterson and why he was put on waivers. Yeah, why was Cal waived? Hey, look, we still believe in Cal Peterson. There's a reason that we signed him to a long-term contract. Uh, you know, over the larger body of his work, Cal has all the skills, uh, you know, physically and mentally to be able to play at the National Hockey League level. We've seen it in small spurts. We haven't seen enough consistency from Cal Peterson. Uh, he certainly was coming off of a, a down year or an inconsistent year last year. We were hoping that coming into this season, he would be able to rebound. And thus far, um, we're just not liking what we're seeing. And so we want to give Cal an opportunity to go down to the American Hockey League level, play on a consistent basis, get that confidence back. And really, it's no different than what we've done with Gabe Velarde a year ago and what we're currently doing with Quentin Byfield. So, again, uh, we're big believers in Cal Peterson, and uh, we think that he'll be back up with the big club and helping us contribute to, uh, you know, more wins at the NHL level once he gets his game back on track. Yeah, he's not the only goalie that's making some money to be sent to the AHL. But Dennis, here's my point: just cut that clip and just go ahead and use it. You, you yeah, don't need right. to hear. From, yeah. You don't need to hear from Blake. You don't need to hear from McClellan. You don't need to hear from. And they can't even do it today because anybody. He's, he's on waivers. Yeah, he's on waivers. You can, you can talk about it yet. Like you don't oh, know what's going to oh, happen. I'm sorry. Then let me let me add to that. Um, all of that, of course, is assuming that he clears waivers. And uh, you know, if another yeah. team uh, likes him as much as we like him, and they happen to to claim him. Um, you know, then like any player that's left the organization, we wish him, you know, nothing but the best. And we appreciate the time that he's given us uh, here while he was a member of the Ontario Reign and the LA Kings. Well, the other thing is they really don't want him, Clint, because then your options are Copley and, and Valalta. And that's not, you know, and, and that's what you mentioned. Ago, Quick started 64 percent of the games, John. That That's too much. Too much. And the numbers are reflected. It, 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 and the numbers are reflected. As bad as Cal's playing. Like, did you look at John's numbers? 330 goals against, 890 save percentage. That ain't getting you to game 83 either. So that that that's that's the major problem. It's that they can't get a save. And it's not even the percentages, John. It's the big save. It's a save that saves a game. It saves the game from going to overtime or in overtime or turns the tide. They don't make saves that turns tide. They they win games because they're outscoring their, their mistakes. It's as simple as that. The goalies aren't saving them. The defense isn't saving them. Their power play has been really solid, that second unit, and they're scoring goals. That's how they're winning games. I'm not sure how sustainable it is given the state of the defense and the goaltending. That's, that's what's really troubling. All right, so the answer uh, also, beyond, beyond – I mean, I think we just covered what's going to happen with Cal Peterson, so he's not going to get claimed. Yeah. Um, hey, Dennis, here, how about this? Are you going to retire from Kings of the Podcast if Cal Peterson you'll, – you'll, the fans will love this. Are you going to retire from Kings of the Podcast if Cal Peterson gets claimed? 
Yeah, but I'll do like, you know, AEW and I'll have some stipulation to bring me back. Okay. Well, like MJF. You, you I'm, go, I'm like, why I'm don't like, you go 80s and mean, you'll be like, what was yeah. not the Dark Rider? What was his name when they put him under the under the mask? Midnight Rider. Midnight Rider. Thank Midnight. you. You'll be the Midnight Rider. We'll just bring you back. <laughs> I'm, I'm the MJF of, of the Kings of the Podcast. So I'll, okay. I'll leave. Easy I'll, killer. I'll talk bad. <laughs> Yeah, well, the, you know, the Jewish connection, you know, the Burberry oh, okay, scarf. Okay, okay. Yeah, exactly. And then, then I'll, I'll find some stipulation, right? A career, okay. career, yeah, career bet. You know, I'm betting my Kings of the Podcast career about Cal <laughs> Peterson Wave, and I'll just weasel out and find some stipulation. Oh no, no, no! I meant he had to be claimed by midnight of the thirtieth. <laughs> sure. Claimed on, you know, four four p.m. on on the first. You know what, Dennis? Uh, I take a lot of heat for, or not a lot. Uh, yeah, sure. I take a lot of heat yeah, for my opinions. Okay, but here, Dennis, yeah. I'm going to go on record right now, and I want everybody to hear me loud and clear. I'm a Cal Peterson guy. So for all the okay. people out there that don't like Cal Peterson, I'm a Cal Peterson guy. I watched okay. Cal Peterson on a nightly basis in the American Hockey League. I talked to his coaches uh, throughout mm-hmm. that time when he when you know was a prospect, uh, and and the comments about Cal Peterson during that time period were, were very reminiscent of the comments uh, related to Jonathan Quick early in his career. And um, I, I still believe in Cal Peterson, and I think that he's going to figure his game out. I don't know if it's a Jack Campbell situation, and he's going to be able to figure it out while he's a member of the LA Kings. So I would encourage you yeah. to check out. Um, I wrote an article with my thoughts on Cal Peterson and talked about Jamie Storr and talked about uh, Jack Campbell and a couple of other situations. But I just I'll go on record and you can clip that and other podcasts can play it over sure. and over and try to clown me on it. I'm a Cal Peterson guy and I have no problem admitting that. And I look forward to Cal getting his game uh, back on track. And I can't wait to see him in Ontario and uh, and talk to him and have a have a conversation with CP40. So putting Cal Peterson aside, the next question becomes because that's just the way sports work, Dennis. <laughs> next game, next man up. Um <laughs> I would expect that Phoenix Copley is the guy that's going to be called up. Uh, it, it could yep. certainly be Matt v, Matt Valalta, but I would expect that it's it's Phoenix Copley. Uh, and here's here's sort of one of the reasons why he has NHL games. He's played for a number of different teams. I mean, it's small sample size. Uh, he's yep. only played a game here, two games there, whatever. But here's the most interesting thing: this guy played 27 games for the Washington Capitals in the 2018-19 season. That sounds like a lifetime ago in the COVID era. Right. But he played 27 right. games that year for the Washington Capitals. He had a save percentage of 905, a goals against average of 2.90. He won 16 of those 27 appearances. He went 16 and seven. And then he just couldn't get a sniff. He's in Hershey after that. And under the yep. Capitals have rotated a bunch of goaltenders in there. But this guy has been playing. I know you don't follow the American Hockey League. So you don't know what's going on in the Ontario rain. But let me just tell you, Phoenix Copley has stolen the net. Okay, he's been the number one goaltender. He's been the guy getting the bulk of the starts for Ontario this year. And in 11 starts in Ontario, he has a 913 save percentage. He has a 248 goals against average. He's been getting it done for the Ontario Reign, and he's playing like a guy who is hungry to get back to the National Hockey League. So while Matt Vallalta might be a prospect, he's been in in the system for a while. And if they really need a little bit of a jolt, I think it's Phoenix Copley that's going to be Rick Knickle that's going to come in here, get a couple of starts, and I think he's going to be impressive for the LA Kings. So that, that's that's my hot take for the night here, Dennis. Well, he doesn't need to come up and have 935 save percentage. If he's like 904 or 905 and make some keys, that's, that'll be good enough. You're not asking him to come up and be Vasilevsky. He's going to come up and, and make some saves at some key times, and they can't get a save at key times. That's the problem. And as big as game... As 
a, as big a big game goalie as quick is, it's just it it hasn't been good enough for me. And look, hasn't had a lot of help. But when you look at you're starting to see that the puck possession game is working for this team because they don't give up a ton of slot shots, but they can't make saves. Like they're not making the average saves. Like some of and it goes back to Cal. Some of the shots shouldn't be beating him, and that's a confidence issue. So if you believe as you do in Cal Peterson, he needs to go down there, win five in a row, like have a nine twenty save percentage. And come back up and start earning his contract. It's not happening right now, but the, the book isn't closed on him with respect to Los Angeles because he's not getting claimed and he still has opportunity. Copley's a big dude also. He's six foot four. So you want to see a big goaltender yeah. in net yeah. uh, for the LA Kings? There you go. He's six foot four. He's 200 pounds. He's from Alaska, Dennis. So there'll be plenty of storylines that people can go and yeah. they can ask him about. Uh, this, this player was undrafted. He played uh, in the USHL. We, of course, had... Uh, we had Gaspo on back at the beginning of the year who uh, has ties to the USHL. He also played Michigan Tech, so uh, he went on to play college hockey there as well uh, in the WCHA. And uh, then he played for the Hershey Bears, which would be one of the most successful AHL franchises of all time. It's the the farm team, of course, of, uh, of the Washington Capitals. And he had a sniff. He made his NHL debut in the 2015-16 season playing for the St. Louis Blues. He also played another game for them later, but... His big season at the NHL level was uh, back then, like I said, a 2018-19 season. He was in those 27 games, so um, pretty interesting. And yeah, it's if, a big ass to put a green goaltender in, John, right now with the state of the, the way it, they're playing defense. Is yeah, it a big ask? It's a big ask, John, for <laughs> a guy who hasn't played yet in the league to go, go make some saves and make some stops. and Yeah, and look, he's 6'4", 200. Can he skate backwards? Maybe you want to put him on the blue line. Maybe <laughs> he needs some size back there too, John. Uh, well, hey, look, if there is anybody that is in the uh, uh, the right frame of mind to take over the Robin Regeer role with the LA Kings, I actually think it's Jonathan Quick. Nobody has been on the cusp of <laughs> yes. getting into multiple fights Agreed. over the last five years, 10 years, than number 32. Yes. So uh, if you're looking for a goaltender to move over to defense, uh, there you go. Dennis, we also didn't, I don't believe we've had a podcast since Akil Thomas. Uh, yes, and we have just, not. Just yeah. to loop back to that story real quick. Sure. A lot of content up on Mayor's Manor over the last week or so. Uh, conversations yeah. with Tyler Madden, who was talking about Byfield and Turcotte and the magic that they create. I would encourage everybody to read that article. Uh, the Akil Thomas story, um, I broke that about a week ago that uh, he was having season-ending surgery. And a uh, real bummer because Akil Thomas is is one of the most fascinating people in the game. You and I have talked quite a bit about that. The guy, had, sure. he had double shoulder surgery. He came back from that mid-year last year. It's really difficult to come in cold mid-season when you didn't go through training camp and all that. He battled his way back through it. He also had a foot injury there along the way. And then the part that just is a real bummer about this particular injury on top of all of the other adversity that he's had to go through, Dennis, it was a play that happened after the whistle so it wasn't even a hockey mm. play right it, it's right. it was created by something that happened during while mm. in play i guess you could call it he, he received a hit and he retaliated and after the whistle and in a scrum and next thing you know he's laying on the ice and, he, and you know now he's having season-ending surgery so uh all the best to akil thomas he will be back and uh marco sturm had some really positive things to say about him recently uh, as well as uh aiden dudas one of his good friends going all the way back to the ohl days he had some some really positive things to say about akil thomas as well so i've put that out there um of late so dennis look we don't know what any of this is going to mean um beyond Cal Peterson being placed on waivers and even clearing waivers. 
We really don't right. know what these closed door meetings were about. So we don't know what's going to happen. Are they going to, you know, is Byfield coming back up earlier than expected? He wasn't due back up till around Christmas. Are, are they going to shake things up? Is Fagamo coming back up? Is Jordan Spence coming up? Mavari, Bjornfoot? I think it's going to be a pretty interesting game against the Arizona Coyotes on Thursday night. It's very interesting. You you left out firing the coach, John. You left. Out <laughs> oh, okay. Let's we're we're running long, so let's end on this. Uh, <laughs> Dennis Bernstein, Todd McClellan has five million dollars left on his contract for next season, in addition to yeah. the money that he is owed for the remainder of this season. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In addition to going on record and saying I'm a Cal Peterson guy, I'm also going to go on record and say Todd McClellan will still be the head coach of the LA Kings, not only in six months, not only in 12 months. I'm going to go so far as to say in about 15 months from now, he's still going to mm-hmm. be the head coach of the LA Kings. I don't think McClellan's going anywhere. I agree. Unless they fall out of the sky, John, they lose 10 in a row or something like that, and they fall out of a, a contention. I don't see it as a, as well. Um, but there was one interesting thing that was said last night, John, in the – in the uh, post was um, John uh, Todd said they better get it together. Not we, they better get it together because it, I, I think the, the question that he doesn't like to answer anymore is that he doesn't know what he's going to get from his team. I think that's the most um, aggravating question for Todd because you don't, when you don't know what you're going to get, how do you fix it? Right? How do you fix if you don't if there's no consistency to your effort? So that's the one thing. It was just to me, and that maybe it's just me. I would normally say, "Hey, we were all bad. The coach was bad. Everybody was bad. The stick boy." But he said that before, though, Dennis. He he's he said exactly that. He said we were all bad. The coaches have to get better. I think he used the number of twenty-eight guys have to be better, including the coaches, whatever Mm -hmm. his number was. So he said that before. Yeah, he has. It's just that he he said they like the the players got to get their act together, and I assume that today that the GM probably echoed those words in these. That's what I think probably happened is that the GM came down from the his suite and said, "Okay, it's time now. It, it, no more messing around. You guys need to focus on playing winning hockey." All right, so. Uh- to all the listeners of Kings of the Podcast, it's time now. No more messing around. You guys need to get over to mayorsmanor.com, catch up on your reading. You need to get to the fourth period, catch up on your reading. Uh, the Hot Stove, we'll see you on Saturday. Kings of the Podcast, yeah. we'll be back soon. We'll talk to everybody. Twitter, calm down, okay? Calm Easy. down, Twitter. Easy. Relax. It's the holidays. Everyone's supposed to be in a good mood. Dennis Bernstein, any parting words? Don't be a donkey, John. <laughs> Be not you, the fans. Not you're fine. <laughs> okay, Don't be thank a donkey. You. Thank so you. That's going to be my tombstone, John. Don't be a donkey. <laughs> okay. To all of you, we love you. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great day.